Welcome to Sunday Schmooze with Rabbi Mendy Kievman from the Chabad House Jewish Community Center on Cedar Street in Milford. Sit back, relax, and enjoy a stimulating discussion of news and humor from a Jewish perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Rabbi Mendy. Good morning, Shavua Tov, Agutevach. I'm so happy you're here joining us for this edition of Sunday Schmooze with Rabbi Mendy. I have so much to talk to you about today. Stockholm Syndrome, you ever heard of that? I want to talk about that. I want to talk about uh, Tu Bishvat, um, also known as Hamisha Asar Bishvat. I'll explain that a little bit. We have a lot of good stuff to talk about. We have a new um, lay down the law of the day. So don't go anywhere. We're going to have a great time. A lot of good music. So you might get up and dance. I know that's one of the downsides of listening to our show each week. Because sometimes you're forced to get up and dance. You know, it's just something you got to do. So let's begin as we do each morning. And as we do each week on our radio show, let's begin by saying the Shema, giving some tzedakah, saying the Shema to talk about the unity of God and how everything in the world is one with God. We give tzedakah to make our day a more charitable day. And then we'll make a blessing on a drink because it's always good to have a drink. So, Let's start. Get a yarmulke. Khani just walked in over here before she goes to Hebrew school. So Khani, maybe you want to come help us today again? So get a yarmulke on your head. If you don't have a yarmulke, put a shmata on your head. I explained that last week. And um, we'll say the shmat. Khani, come right over here to the microphone. Cover your eyes. And do it very loud so everyone can hear you. Shema Yisrael Adonai Thank you very, very much, Hanala. Now we're going to give some tzedakah. You want to get stuck together with everybody? Yeah. Okay, take a coin. I'm going to take a coin. We have a pushka right here. Okay. Let's put it in the pushka. Everyone should put it in the pushka. Okay. And now if you have a drink, whether it's a hot tea, which is really good today, or some other drink, please say it together with me. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shehakol Nihiyah Bidvaro. 
<clears throat> that's really good. So, you know, there was this two-year-old that was once on a uh, family summer vacation and disappeared, you know, near their lakeside uh, home. Now, near, you know, almost a dozen relatives are running around the forest and the shoreline looking for this toddler. And finally, they found little Matthew playing calmly in the woods. So the mother goes over to Matthew and says, Listen to me, Matthew. From now on, when you want to go somewhere, just tell mommy, okay? Just tell mommy first, then you can go. Matthew thought about that for a moment and, and then says, Okay, I want to go to Disney World. <clears throat> you know, yesterday we studied the portion, we read the portion of Beshalach. In, uh, in Shul yesterday, we read it from the Torah. It talks about when the Jewish people were sent out of Egypt and were now traveling on their, they had their flight plan from Egypt to Israel. If you look at that flight plan, obviously there was no flights, but we'll call it a flight plan. If you look at that flight plan, it would seem that somebody was, you know, fell asleep, you know, that day at, at air traffic control. The journey that the Jewish people took reminds me of the route I was once forced to take when I was in some remote town in Dominican Republic. See, during the summers, yeshiva boys have the opportunity when you're in the older segment of the yeshiva, when you're ready in 770, you have the opportunity to go on Merkis Shlichus. I, I've talked about this a couple of times in the past. Merkis Shlichus is the opportunity to visit remote communities within the United States or outside the United States where there may be not enough Jews to have a full-time rabbi, but two yeshiva boys go there during the summer months instead of, you know... Uh, I don't know, going on their own vacation, you, you take a suitcase filled with kosher food, you know, Jewish books, mezuzahs and tefillin, candlesticks, and you head to these remote towns and you start searching for Jews. And you search, you know, you go in the olden days. When I say olden days, it means the days that I went in the 1995, 96, 97. Those years... We didn't have, obviously, cell phones, and we would just um, go into a town, go over to the first payphone, or if our ho went to our hotel, you know, the hotels have two books in every hotel, hotel room back then. And one of those two books was a telephone book. So either it was at a, at a payphone or in the hotel, te uh, you know, draw, we took out the telephone book, and we'd search for names, you know, the typical names, Cohen, Goldberg, Horowitz, Kleinberg, Klein, all the different typical Jewish names. And then once we find, and then we'd call them. You know, we'd call them, we'd, we'd say, hi, my name is Mendy, I'm a rabbinical student, and I always had to say that very carefully. I had to say very slow and carefully, rabbinical student, because otherwise they thought I was saying medical student. And sometimes they thought I was coming to give them, you know, a vaccine or something. So I would say I was a rabbinical student visiting the community to meet with Jewish people. 
And, you know, sometimes people hung up the phone on us. But oftentimes people were very receptive. And we'd make up a time to come to their house or to their office. And then once we meet them, we'd ask them about other Jews in the community. And then we'd go meet them. So I was fortunate to be able to go to a few remote, exotic places. Maybe I'll talk about more about this idea on another show, because that wasn't my plan to talk about it today. But one of the places I went to was Dominican Republic, which today, by the way, a number of the places I went to back then that didn't have a rabbi, today there is a full-time Chabad rabbi there. For instance, in Jamaica, uh, Dominican Republic, St. Martin. So... We're in, we're in the Dominican Republic, some remote t- uh, town there, and we're driving down, well, you know, we had Triptych. You remember Triptych? I don't know if they still exist, but AAA would make Triptychs, where if you, you got all the places you had to go, mm-hmm. and they printed out on this long paper, but it was broken up into a bunch of little papers on a uh, spiral uh, binding. And we had Triptych, and we'd follow the routes through Triptych. So we're traveling, and we're on the street, and all of a sudden... This is what seemed like a river in front of us. I could see the road continuing on the other side. But there was no bridge to be found. Basically, when they made that road, it was on, on, uh, you know, on a low area where the water just came right over it <clears throat> at some point. And they didn't make a bridge to go over it. So there you go. You had a river right in the middle. Maybe it went down and the road was visible at some time in the year. So I, I, I doubt that Triptych, or even a GPS device, which didn't exist then, or at least didn't exist readily, would have been able to help us with that one. After many, you know, winding miles later, we were back on track. So now go back to the Torah portion that we read yesterday. If you look at the way God writes it out for us, you'll see that this zigzag that the Jewish people did going around in circles was not by mistake. It wasn't like somebody fell asleep at the air traffic control, but rather it was purposely made in a way that the Jews should go in a zigzag way, or a roundabout way, in a circular way. So if you look in the opening words of the portion that we read yesterday, B'Shalach, it starts as follows. It came to pass when Pharaoh sent the people away that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines because that was close by. Because why did he do this, the Torah tells us? Because God said, if I did it in a straight way, straight from Egypt to Israel, the people, the Jewish people would reconsider whenever they would see war because they were going to the land of Israel and it was, uh, inevitably there was going to be war and they would see the war right away and they'd want to turn back and go to Egypt. And the obvious question is, Return and go back to Egypt? Why would they want to go back to Egypt? Well, we know now that history proved God right. Doesn't that always happen? After God led them in this roundabout way, uh, roundabout route, later on we find that they called out, let us appoint a leader, and what do they say we should do? Return to Egypt. See, God was right when he, when he was worried that they might want to return to Egypt whenever things get tough. You know, when things get tough, you get out of the kitchen. You know, that's what God was worried about, that they were going to want to return to Egypt. So certainly God had, you know, good grounds to decide to, to make it harder 
for them to want to go back, to retrace their steps and go back to Egypt. And that's why God gave them this dizzying circle, uh, circular route on, on the way to Israel. But the question still stands, why would the Jewish people even consider going back to that torture chamber known as Egypt? What could possibly cause them to want the land that was their suffering for over 200 years? I think the answer to the question is really in those first words of the verse that I just quoted from the first verse of the Torah portion. You would think it would say, it should say, when the Jewish people left Egypt, then God led them in, in, in a roundabout way to go to the land of Israel. But it doesn't say when the Jewish people left Israel, Egypt. Rather, it says, when Pharaoh sent the Jewish people away. The responsibility for their leaving Egypt is placed squarely on Pharaoh. Why is it being placed on Pharaoh that Pharaoh chased them out of Egypt? I think what it's trying to hint to us or to suggest to us that there were plenty of Jews who weren't so eager to leave. They were driven out by Pharaoh because Pharaoh was fed up with the plagues and the tzuris, the trouble that the Jewish people were causing him. And, the, and they would have wanted to stay. Many of them would have wanted to stay, it would seem. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Stockholm Syndrome. And much has been written about the irony of the 1973 hostages of an armed uh, bank robbery that took place in Stockholm, who when they were released, they took up the defense of their captors. Till today, psychologists continue to study and document the phenomena known as the Stockholm Syndrome. But the mystical, spiritual equivalent didn't start in Sweden in 1973. 1973 is a very important year, by the way. I know some of you are going to hear this and say, he's such a baby. That's the year I was born. Some of you are going to say, wow, he's so old. Anyway, so way back, millennia ago, there were some Jews who were suffering from a spiritual version of the Stockholm Syndrome. True, they suffered immensely at the hands of Pharaoh. But they argued, after the ten plagues, Definitely, Pharaoh's heart has certainly softened. Surely, now, he would just want to live with us in peace. We don't even have to give, bring him plagues anymore. He already knows that we, it's, it's worthwhile to live with us in peace. Mm -hmm. They embraced the notion of reuniting with their oppressors under the wishful thinking or the wishful impression that life would all of a sudden be better. Here's something very interesting. We'll do the Hebrew word for the day brought to you by uh, the Armenians. According to Kabbalah, the mystics explain that Egypt is not just a geographic location in the Middle East. Not only that, Egypt is not just a, a, you know, a superpower of the past. Rather, Egypt... In Hebrew, the word for Egypt is Mitzrayim. 
And here we get to the Hebrew word for the day, because Mitzrayim represents limitations. In Hebrew, the word Meitzar, Meitzar means constraints or limitations. And Mitzrayim is etymologically connected to the word Meitzarim, to the word Meitzarim. And that's why, you know, in the Talmud, there's a verse, a, a, a statement of the Talmud, which is part of the 12 Torah passages that the Rebbe asked us as children to learn by heart and to live with every day. And in that passage, it's actually a passage that we say at the Seder every single year. By the way, Passover is not so far off. Perry pointed out that if we're now four weeks and you know, minus two days, because on Friday was four weeks from Purim. So for four weeks from Purim, that means we're eight weeks from Passover. And we say it at the Seder. Bechol dor vador chayav adam. In every generation, one should imagine himself as if he's leaving Egypt. What does that even mean? So Kabbalah explains that everyone should be constantly liberating himself from their personal Mitzrayim, from their personal Mitzarim, from their personal limitations and constraints. Pharaoh's push to enslave the Jewish people is similar to the animalistic feelings that we have within us. Those animalistic feelings are always trying to limit and hinder any time we want to have some spiritual growth. There's that animal inside of us, the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination that says, no, 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 you can't do it. How are you going to light Shabbos candles every week? Don't you have to stay at work till a certain time? How are you going to give 10% of your earnings to charity? Does, isn't that too much money to give to charity? How are you going to put on tefillin or pray every day? Do we have time every day to do this? Whenever you feel like you want to grow spiritually, there's always that little pharaoh inside you, that little Egypt inside us that tries to stop us, to limit us, and to hinder any growth. It's the voice that mocks the traditions of our past. And then we ask, do we really have to do the same thing Bubby did? You know, we're going to talk about Tubishvat soon, but this week we had an amazing program that Rachi did in the Hebrew school where the kids invited their grandparents to join them on this amazing Zoom program. And what was the program? As Chani says, it was a painting party. Every grandparent received um, a canvas. And then they came together on Thursday, the grandkids in their homes, the grandparents in their homes, some of them in Connecticut, some of them in Massachusetts, obviously, but some of them as far away as California, the grandparents, that is. And then, after doing a program together on Zoom, they were split up into breakout rooms, where the grandparents were in one breakout room and the children from the Hebrew school were in another breakout room. And then we had an artist teach the children in their own room how to paint a half an apple tree, the right side 
of an apple tree and all the surrounding, you know, the grass and the, and the, and the, and the sky. And it was a beautiful thing. I, I posted pictures both on Facebook as well as on our uh, email from Friday. And, and um, you can see there, amazing pictures. And then in the grandparents' room, the artist taught them how to do the left side of the tree which included a stream. It was, it was really beautiful. And then the grandchildren sent their canvases. Well, we didn't see all of them yet, but we saw at least one of them so far. Sent it to the grandparents, and the grandparents are going to put them together and hang them up on the wall. There is no generation gap at Chabad. The grandparents, grandchildren are always doing something, building a tree which has fruit, which has seeds which builds more trees, which plants and, and, and creates more trees. And that's what Chabad is all about, and that's what Chabad's Hebrew school is all about. So when you have traditions that you receive from your parents and your grandparents, your bubbies and your zaydis, so then you, you, you want to continue them until you have that pharaoh inside you, the Mitzrayim, who says, nah, it's, that's old-fashioned. Go to shul every week. That my, my Zaidi did that. He was religious. Ah, I'm not religious. I'm not going to go to shul every week. And besides, there's a pandemic. I don't want to, you know, take part. Obviously, before the pandemic, we had an excuse why we didn't go to shul then. And after the pandemic is over, we'll have an excuse why we don't go then. But that's what that animal, Mitzrayim, Egypt, and Pharaoh is doing inside of us. So it's our obligation to constantly and continuously free ourselves from the clutches of this Egypt. And how do we do that? Just simply doing one mitzvah at a time. And as we remove one shekel after another shackle, we do one mitzvah after another. Let's not make the same mistake that our ancestors made. Let's realize that the internal Pharaoh is indeed a real menace. That mitzar, that constraint, is a menace. And we need to put an end to this abusive romance that the inner Pharaoh seems to hold over us. Let's get rid of our spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. You know, last week we played a song, Rolling On, from Eighth Day. It was a big hit. It's a brand new song. And it fits perfectly with this week's theme, the theme of moving forward, getting rid of the shackles, getting rid of Egypt, and it was a request on Shabbos. Everyone said they loved the song, so we're going to play it again. Here we go. Eighth day, rolling forward. Here we go. Some say, turn around, turn around and fight them. Some say, close your eyes and pray. Some wave a big white flag, screaming with surrender. Some quit, calling it a day. Just keep on moving, roll it on. Don't stop for the ocean. Keep on moving, waters fade away. Keep on moving, roll it on. Don't stop for the ocean. Keep on moving till you find your way. Fire Mary, so for, for, for. Fire Mary, so for. 
Just nothing about survival Some say Doesn't really pay Some hold on tight Screaming Can't change my nature Some say We just can't find our way Just keep on moving Roll it on Don't stop for the ocean stop, don't stop. Keep on moving Waters fade away Keep on moving Roll it on Don't stop for the ocean don't stop, don't stop. Keep on moving till you find your way Fire in Mervi is so for, for, for Fire in Mervi is so for Fire in Mervi is so for, for, for Fire in Mervi is so for on my mind and I just can't swim The only way to win is to jump right in Staring down a barrel but I trust in him Waves are crashing but we're coming in Got my eye on the prize, won't stop for the lies I'll be running down this path till he opens my eyes Clouds are dark, I can't see a thing But I wait to see the light that my faith will bring Indeed, a really great song. I'm very happy. I love Eighth Day, and they come out with better hits all the time. So before we get to speaking about Chamisha Asar Bishvat or Tu Bishvat, I want to jump back for a moment to uh, Yud Shvat. Last week, we commemorated and celebrated, um, firstly, the, the passing of the previous Rebbe on the 10th day of Shvat, and then the Rebbe's ascent to leadership or acceptance of the role as the Rebbe of Chabad, the seventh leader of the Chabad movement, on the 10th and 11th of Shvat, which was last Shabbos and Sunday. We talked a lot about it, um, but I, I, there was one thing I was going to talk about last week, and I have to uh, go back and um, correct that now, which was in that inaugural mimer, the inaugural f- uh, uh, discourse that the, that the Rebbe said on that night in 1951, the Rebbe spoke about a verse in the Torah, which talks about building a temple. It's firstly when the Jews were in the desert, but it continued on till later on when the Jews were in Israel and built the temple there. And the Torah tells us, li mikdash, and you should make for me a um, temple, a sanctuary, vishachanti besocham, and I will dwell within them. I didn't miss 
translate that. The actual word is v'shachanti b'socham, I'll dwell within them. But yet, before that it said, you should make for me a sanctuary. So what does it mean by I'll dwell within them? And the Rebbe explained that actually, each one of us are a miniature sanctuary for God. When we make a sanctuary for God, God will dwell within us. The them in that verse is us, the Jewish people. Conversely, if we allow God to dwell within us, then we'll also have a temple, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. We talked about you know, the Pharaoh within us, the Egypt within us, and the Rebbe tells us that we need to have a, a spiritual sanctuary, a dwelling place for God within each and every one of us. So there's a song that the students in yeshiva in Los Angeles put together on the words of, of this verse, God dwelling within every single one of us. I had I put those the lyrics in the email I sent out earlier, so you can follow along. So if you want to go go back to that email right now, and you can follow along as they sing this song.
Growing up, you may have heard the song, Tu Bishvatigi Ya Chagai Lanot. Tu Bishvatigi, right? You've heard that song, maybe in Hebrew school. Tu Bishvat, which is really known as Chamisha Asa Bishvat, both of which mean the 15th of Shvat. Chamisha Asar is the Hebrew word for 15. And two, here's some interesting tidbit for you today. Two, <clears throat> is, a, is made up of two Hebrew letters, a tes and a vav. Tes and a vav is the numerical value of nine and six. Nine plus six equals 15. So Tu B'Shvat is really just a way of saying the 15th day of Shvat. The 15th day of Shvat is known as a new year for trees. And the obvious question is, if it's a new year for trees, we already had a new year. We had a new year for all of us on Rosh Hashanah. So why would we celebrate it? Now, I got to tell you that the, the actual reason for the New Year for Trees has a lot to do with um, the agricultural mitzvahs. In Israel, there are many mitzvahs that have to be done every year, and there's a cycle uh, that the ag agriculture goes through, and different tithing and gifts that you have to give. So when does the year begin and end? is on Chamisha Asr B'Shvat, the 15th of Shvat. That's when it begins and ends. That's what the New Year for Trees, in the basic form, is all about. But what do you do to celebrate? You know, on Rosh Hashanah, we go hear the shofar. We, you know, do Tashlich. We crown God as our king. What do we do on the New Year, the Rosh Hashanah, for trees? So... Firstly, the Torah tells us, because man is the tr a tree of the field. And that's one reason why we celebrate the, the New Year for trees, because we are like trees. I'll talk about how we're like trees in a moment. But first, what is done? I know we already passed Tu B'Shvat. It happened uh, last um, Thursday. But lessons are always important. And then next year, Tu B'Shvat, you're going to want to know what to do. So I'm telling you now. I don't remember if I talked about it last week or not. So, it's never too late. Judaism always teaches us it's never too late to start something good. So, what is it about the trees that we should celebrate? So, in modern days, since the uh, 1500s, it has become a Kabbalistic custom to eat fruits to spend the day eating extra fruits, specifically the fruits of which the land of Israel has been blessed. You may know that the Torah records a number of times seven different kinds 
of vegetation that, the, that Israel will be blessed with. The seven include wheat and barley, but then from the fruit, it's a pomegranate and grapes and dates and figs and olives. So the custom is to eat from those fruits on this day, on the day of Tu B'Shvat. Before then, it was a day which was just known as a holiday. It's a day where we had, you know, certain prayers were omitted from the service because it was only a happy day. Certain things weren't allowed to be done. For example, you're not allowed to fast on Tu B'Shvat. But in modern days, since the 1500s, the, the conventional custom is to eat fruits, and specifically the fruits from the land of Israel. The Rebbe expounds on a deeper meaning behind this custom of eating fruits from Israel, specifically from Israel. And the Rebbe explains that while wheat is considered a staple of the human diet, fruit are often eaten just, you know, for pleasure. The Torah is oftentimes referred to as bread and water, like a necessity. But at other times, the Torah is referred to as wine, olive oil, or date honey, which are typically not foods of necessity. I know some people think wine is a necessity, but it, those are more foods of pleasure, not necessity. And the Rebbe explains that the two types, the fruits of necessity and the foods of uh, the foods of necessity and the fruits of pleasure, refer to two dimensions of the Torah. There's the revealed part of the Torah, which is necessary at all times and for all Jews throughout the millennia. And then there's the deeper mystical parts of the Torah, the Kabbalistic parts of the Torah, which, especially in earlier generation, wasn't really for everyone. The mystical parts of the Torah were only taught by the greatest teachers to their greatest students. But the regular man on the street didn't study the Kabbalistic's understanding, the secrets of the Torah. But as the exile continues on and the spiritual state of the Jewish people and the world grow ever darker, sticking just to the bare bones necessities is no longer enough. It's imperative and it's important that every single one of us should study the deeper mystical aspects of the Torah, the fruit of the Torah, the fruit that infuses pleasure, strength, and spiritual energy into our everyday service of God. And that's why it makes sense that the custom of eating fruits on the 15th of Shvat gained prominence and momentum at the same time that the mystical teachings of Kabbalah began to spread. The inner dimensions the secrets of the Torah infuses us with a newfound uh, life and vitality to finally finish off the mission that we were given to light up the darkness of the world and usher in the ultimate world of redemption. Through the days of Tu B'Shvat, I bless us all that we merit the redemption now. You know, I always talk about starting off small. Obviously, putting on tefillin and lighting Shabbos candles are all great ideas and everyone should really start doing them if you're not doing them yet. Enhance your mezuzah. You know, that's why we have the Freedom Mezuzah Project so that everyone can get one free mezuzah for their home and then put up as many mezuzahs as you can on your homes. 
and it's it's amazing. This mezuzah project has been a fascinating um, thing because every week I go and put up new mezuzahs in people's homes, and some people put up just the one mezuzah that they uh, got for free, and some people put up mezuzahs on their whole house. Other people check their mezuzahs. It's been a very, very wonderful, and I appreciate Ellie for uh, coming up with this idea and for spearheading it and putting in the seed money for it, because indeed it has um, enhanced my week as every week I get to take down and check mezuzahs and put up new mezuzahs, and the, the feeling is just immense. The good feeling is immense, which leads me to talk about giving you a chance to have an immensely good feeling, to do the right thing and do a mitzvah. Chabad Kirs, a program we established for Adopt a Friend. Every single person in the community has the ability to adopt a friend. And that means someone you may know already or somebody you don't know yet. And make it your job, your um, part of your, day, your weekly activity that you spend 10 minutes either calling that person or dropping off something nice at that person's home or sending a card or an email, just something to that friend. And now everyone can do this. Whether you are getting out and about, going to the stores, going to work, or you're sitting at home isolated, everyone can take part in this program. And the dividends are unbelievable. I've heard from the receivers, I've heard from the, the, the givers, so to speak. Because everybody's a giver and everyone's a receiver. And I've heard from both ends, and I can tell you, that people on both ends are enjoying this program. Those who are receiving these beautiful packages and those who are making the phone calls or going over to people's homes, obviously with social distancing, dropping off something by the door, everyone is really enjoying it. And I, I, I advise you to join this program. Just go to our website, gachabad.com, and there you'll be able to um, sign up for Chabad Kirs, you can sign up for the mezuzah project. You can sign up, if you already have mezuzahs on your doors, you can sponsor mezuzahs to be put on other people's doors. You can either just sponsor a mezuzah or you can sponsor one for a specific person. And we'll take care of the rest. We'll make sure the mezuzah gets put up at their home. So there's many, many ways for you to do something to change this world and bring about redemption. But you can always start off small. If you didn't get a chance to go to your computer yet to sign up Chabad Kirs, or if you're doing Chabad Kirs already, or you already have mezuzahs, you can also do something small. This is, there's a great song by a guy named Barry Weber who sings about giving a smile. It's in Yiddish, it's in Hebrew, and it's in English. Yiddish word for the day brought to you by Kate's Financial Services. A shmechel. A shmechel is a smile. Can you say that word? Shmechel. And then when you say it, it actually makes you smile. It's a shmechel. It makes you smile. So give a shmechel. Give a smile. And that will be the reason, the cause, that somebody else smiles. So don't discount the power of your smile, whether you're just going to the store to pick up the newspaper. Does anybody do that anymore? Or you're going to pick up some fruits and vegetables because we have to have the pleasures of life too. Either way, you see a person, give a smile, and be the cause for someone else's smile. 
the law a daily halacha it's a new program uh, which is being brought to you by the Armenians that every week we're going to try to talk about one Jewish law that you may have heard about maybe you didn't maybe you heard about it and um, you didn't know how to do it so we'll talk about another law each week in the past say we've talked about the mitzvah that when you wake up in the morning the first thing we do is we say Moda'ani. Moda'ani, we th- give thanks to God, and we do that right in the morning. Before we do anything else, we open our eyes and we thank God for giving us our souls back. But did you know that right after we say Moda'ani, we're supposed to wash our hands? We wash our hands because at night, our souls go up to heaven. When we go to sleep, our souls go up to heaven. And when they're up in heaven, it gets rejuvenated. And you might spell the Jew and rejuvenated with a J-E-W. 
it gets rejuvenated as it goes through its past day's actions and prepares for the new day. So that the new day should be a better day. Being that most of the soul leaves the body while we sleep, there is a level of impurity that enters the body. And then when we wake up, that soul comes back and the level of impurity leaves us. And every time we, we encounter some level of impurity, we wash our hands. And that's why it's a mitzvah to wash our hands right away as soon as we get up in the morning. And for this reason, you may know this, there are some people who will place a bowl and a wash cup, a wash basin and a wash cup, right near their bed, filled with water. They place it there the night before, so that after they wake up, they open their eyes, they thank God for their soul, and then immediately wash their hands. Now, during that time, you don't make the typical blessing that you would make when you wash your hands for bread, or even later on in the morning. This is the first initial hand washing to remove any form of spiritual dirt that may have accumulated over the course of the evening. There you have it, lay down the law. My friend Peter sent me a video clip a couple of weeks ago and I said I was gonna put it on the radio, I just didn't have a chance every week another thing came up. Oftentimes we feel this huge burden of our problems that are going on around us, whether it's the pandemic or the riots or the financial instability. There's so many things we feel that are coming down upon us. But I've talked to you already about this since the beginning of the pandemic how we have to put things into perspective. And this video that Peter sent me, which is titled, The Difference Between Being Born in 1900. If you were born in the year 1900, things would have been a lot different than it is today. And it's a great way to put into perspective what you think you're going through and how terrible you think it is. Here, listen to this, and then tell, your, tell me, or yourself, even more importantly, tell yourself how amazing the blessings are that we have today. Imagine you were born in 1900. When you are 14, World War I begins and ends when you are 18 with 22 million dead. Soon after a global pandemic, the Spanish flu appears, killing 50 million people. And you are alive and 20 years old. When you are 29, you survive the global economic crisis that started with the collapse of the New York Stock Exchange, causing inflation, unemployment and famine. When you are 33 years old, the Nazis come to power. When you are 39, World War II begins and ends when you are 45 years old, with a 60 million dead. In the Holocaust, 6 million Jews die. When you are 52, the Korean War begins. When you are 64, the Vietnam War begins and ends when you are 75. A child born in 1985 thinks his grandparents have no idea how difficult life is, but they have survived several wars and catastrophes. Today we have all the comforts in our new world amid a new pandemic, but we complain because we need to wear masks. We complain because we must stay confined to our homes where we have food, electricity, running water, Wi-Fi and even Netflix. None of that existed back in the day, but humanity survived those circumstances and never lost their joy of living. A small change in our perspective can generate miracles. We should be thankful that we are alive. We should do everything we need to do to protect and help each other. I mentioned earlier that I was going to tell you one of the reasons why we celebrate the New Year for Trees is because we are like a tree. And I had it in my email on Friday. Nine ways, 
nine lessons from a tree, nine ways that we can be like a tree, because the Torah does indeed tell us that we are like the tree of the field. Number one, lesson number one, always grow towards the light. As we go through life, we must always move towards holiness and light and warmth, reaching ever higher for something that is beyond us. The Rebbe writes in a Yom Yom, when it comes to physical things, we should look at people who have less than us and say, oh, I have plenty. However, when it comes to spiritual things, we should look to people who do and have more than us and say, oh, I want to be like them. I want to have more spirituality. Always reach towards the light. Lesson number two, even the smallest scratch can have a lasting effect. You know, a small scratch on a young sapling can leave a lasting scar on a full-grown tree. And that's why we have to be very careful in the critical and formative years of a child to make sure that we educate our children in the perfect way. Lesson number three, grow deep roots. As we grow, we must remain connected to our source, and our source is God. How do we connect with God? By doing mitzvahs. You know that the word mitzvah, besides meaning a commandment, it, only, it also comes from the word safsa, which means attachment. When we do a mitzvah, we're creating a bond, an attachment, a connection with the God who gave us the commandment. Number four, lesson number four, provide refuge for others. Just as a tree selflessly provides shade and shelter, we should also be a source of comfort for others and provide resources for those in need. Lesson number five, grow sweet fruits for others to enjoy. So be, because beyond giving shade, a tree also bears fruit. So we have to proactively reach out to others and bring sweetness and sustenance into their lives. You can do that through the Chabad Kirs program. You know, often people might say, it takes many years for the seeds that you sow to come into fruition. That's okay. The famous Chani Hamagal once met an elderly man who was planting a carob tree. Chani asked the guy, how long does it take for this tree to have fruit? And the guy said it takes 70 years. Surprised, Chani asked him, do you think you will live 70 more years to eat from the fruit of the tree? And this old man replied, I found carob trees in this world. Just as my ancestors planted trees for me, so do I plant trees for those who will follow me. Make sure that we plant the seeds for those to come in the future. Number six, let your leaves return to the earth. Just as the leaves of a tree fall to the earth, and, it, and, and when it does, it enriches the soil, we also should give back to the world to sustain others. Lesson number seven from a tree, be flexible in the wind. Because only a tree that can bend in the wind will survive a storm. Similarly, we must be accepting of what God sends, never breaking or giving up hope. Lesson number eight, grow stronger through your life experiences. Just as the rings of a tree record its growth through years of drought, through years of rain, whether it's fire or it's calm, so too we must continue to grow, always adding another level of wisdom learned from the experiences that life brings us. And finally, lesson number nine from a tree, 
be impactful. Trees don't only provide immediate benefits, like shade, wood, and food. They enrich the ecosystem. They filter the air, and they give us oxygen. In other words, we have to make sure that we make a lasting impact on the world. Let's start by remembering this. Your next deed will change the world. So make it a good one. L'chaim! You've been listening to Sunday Schmooze with Rabbi Mendy Kievman from the Chabad House Jewish Community Center on Cedar Street in Milford. For more information on the Chabad House, including upcoming events, adult programs, Hebrew school, and more, visit gotchabad.com. That's G-O-T-C-H-A-B-A-D.com. Shalom.